0: So I'm sat in Soho, in the middle of Soho, at a place called the House of St. Barnabas, which used to be a women's refuge, actually. This was a women's hostel. I'm sat with Mira Manik. And um, as you walk in, Mira, on the outside, it says House of Charity. Yes. And back in the day when this was formed, the word charity used to mean love. So this is a house of love. That's the whole- How beautiful. Yeah, its aim was to kind of find space, love and shelter for women who had no alternatives. And um, over time, clearly, it became unfit for purpose, sanitary-wise, and so it's become a pop-up space and then a member space with a charity and purpose-driven aim, that's what it's all about.
1: It's wonderful, I'm so happy to be here. It's amazing. Beautiful space and inspiring to record a podcast here.
0: It's, it's glorious, and I've sat with Mira Manick, who is one of my absolute favourite chefs. But more than that, we'll talk about what Mira does in a minute. And it's an utter joy for you to come east slightly and join me.
1: Well, I used to live around here literally just before lockdown. So it's nice to be back in Soho.
0: We had a plan, Nick and I, to um, retire to Soho, to sell everything and buy a a flat here when we got to like 60, 62, something like that. And then lockdown kind of changed that. We kind of thought, actually, if this is going to be a regular thing, we quite like living in the countryside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So many people have like shifted and change their perspective on cities and going more into the countryside because there's so much more you can space-wise and just inspiration and air and fresher. Yeah, I think like, when I lived in Soho, the one thing that hit me that I didn't really enjoy is coming out of my apartment and having the fumes of the night before or all the restaurants that are starting to cook in the morning and you literally feel that on the streets. You really yeah. smell it. You kind of feel that griminess. Yeah. As much as I love Soho, I think I was ready to leave that.
0: I've got friends in Brighton who say exactly the same thing. Actually. But for me, getting off the train at Euston and thinking the smell of a dirty city. Absolutely. That's how I feel about
1: Bombay, actually. When I land in Bombay, I'm like, the smell of Bombay, the smell of India. And it is a dirty city. But actually, there's just something about landing there that I just it feels like I've just come home.
0: So we can go there briefly, actually, because I've only been once and it was my absolute favourite city I have ever been to. And I love New York and I love Istanbul and I love Lisbon. But landing in Mumbai, getting off the plane, smelling the city, and then being immersed in the utter crazy creativity of the city. I've never been anywhere like it. I, I, I love it. We're desperate to go back, but we've not been able so to. So
1: desperate to go back as well. I mean, I went luckily just before lockdown, but sadly not for a very long time. But I used to spend months and months. I practically lived in India for, I would say, on and off for a few years. I was between Dubai, and India, traveling a lot, and I was working as a travel journalist at the time, also dipping my toes into potentially living in India, because I was trying and testing my feet as to, you know, can I live in Bombay and what can I do here? And I used to just spend a lot of time there. I just loved the city and the energy, but generally just being in India, Mumbai is a great place to access India from.
0: Yeah, I can see that. So we'll get onto that in a minute, but um, I start in the same way. So first off, tell me about yourself. Give me a two minute version of who you are, what you believe in, and why should anybody care? Wow.
1: I am an author of two books, Saffron Soul, which is a Gujarati vegetarian heritage Indian recipes from Gujarat, and also my own take on Indian recipes, practically vegan. And the second book is Prajna or Pragya, which is Ayurvedic rituals for happiness, which is a book on Ayurveda, on my journey, on spirituality in India, and on rituals that can bring you back to life and give you more oomph in life and provide stability and grounding. And so those are my two books. And I also have a chai brand, which is called Chai by Mira, which initially started as a cafe in Soho in Kingly Court. And thereafter, during lockdown, I went online and the chai brand now has five flavors, sixth one coming along and lots of giftable boxes with books and chai cups and all sorts.
0: It's an amazing brand and the chai is lovely. Thank you, and
1: thank the, you. And the
0: book, I always say prana, so I'm saying it completely wrong. No, right. fine. The book is brilliant. Oh, thank I you. I really, really like it. We'll come to that in a minute. But um, the three questions that I love to ask in order to get into who you are and why you are, go back to your childhood. I'm really interested in what your childhood tasted like, sounded like, and smelt like.
1: So, taste. I remember more pertinently than other things waking up in the morning and my mum's bowl of porridge steaming hot ready at 6 30 in the morning before i went to school and that's one thing that i literally crave in winter when i'm feeling down just a bowl of porridge i know that sounds odd because i've written a cookbook on indian food but porridge with cinnamon first thing in the morning is what i crave and that's because of my childhood and smelt like, I would say, dharka or vaghar, which is uh, the Indian word for the tempering of spices. Yeah. So the house was always, you know, we always had Gujarati food at home. And I grew up with my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, and my mom and dad. Until I was about eight, nine. After that, even though we moved house, I was still with my grandparents. You know, I'd see them every day. So the tempering of spices was very much a part of everyday life. And that's tempering of spices, that vaghar, which goes into every dish almost, especially a dal, is very, a particular smell. Yeah. And that's what I probably remember about in terms of smells, even though I've actually never thought about this before, so I'm not sure if this is correct, but that's what comes to mind. Bagar and porridge, and what was the third thing?
0: What did it sound like?
1: Sound like, wow, sound like. I would say the chatter or the hum of my aunts and my mum and my grandmother talking in the kitchen, probably, because even though I don't remember that, I feel like, that's probably the sound that and there was always noise you know like my grandfather would be there usually my dad and my uncles would be leaving the house and that was only up till you know a certain age and then i was we were in our own house but even then we'd come and go from each other's and our houses are now even now still just a few minutes away from one another so there is that sort of element of togetherness and eating together most like many days of the week and even though i lived abroad coming back to that coming back to busyness and almost a madhouse yeah. Is, is what I sort of think of.
0: But that's love, isn't it? That chitter-chatter, that sound. Our, our daughter, our eldest daughter, Daisy, who's nearly at 28 now, her degree is in fine art, and her final piece was around the kitchen as a place to share um, women's stories, where women came, rather than as a place of emancipation, which for many people it is, I completely understand that, but also how that could be reclaimed. And the, those stories, and going back to having conversations with my grandparents, or her great-grandma, in the kitchen making apple pie with them as a place to share the kitchen is a great fantastic place to start
1: absolutely that's what i miss the most about pre-lockdown days sitting in the kitchen with my grandmother while she cooked or while we cooked together or learning something from her or her getting annoyed with me and we can't really go there anymore because even now there's still that slight fear so i go and see my grandmother but we sort of sit slight distance apart. It's changed
0: your rituals.
1: Yeah, it's a real, real change. And that's what I probably miss most about pre-pandemic times. And something that I never thought I would be treasuring or cherishing or looking back on and thinking those times might not come again now.
0: But this is a rich vein here. And I think we'll talk about rituals as we go. But the unceremonial ritual of food prep, of talking to Nan or Grandma when you're doing something else, accidental conversations almost. I think we lose those a lot actually as we age and as we we move out Um, and your house sounds amazing right and whether or not when you were in the early years when you were all together that sounds like a really velvety rich space to be but even when you had your own home or your your parents had their own home it sounds to me like there was enough elastic between you for you to come back together on a regular basis. Which of your grandparents did you learn most from?
1: It's actually my father's Parents that I lived with, in a sense, and my mother's parents, they are a couple of hours away in Leicestershire. So yes, I saw them. God's county, as we like to
0: call it, is where Ah, I'm from.
1: Didn't actually know that, but yes, all the way there, we used to actually spend a few weeks in the summer there. So I really remember Loughborough and walking in the woods and going and seeing my grandparents at that time, and my my nana, which is what we call maternal grandfather. He did pass away early in his 80s of a stroke, and then he sort of collapsed as well, but he would do headstands every morning and have his Weetabix and he had his rituals and I really remember those rituals because when I stayed there, I'd watch him having his Weetabix, I'd watch him doing his headstands against the wall and obviously I didn't think of it as health or yoga or anything then, I was quite young, but I just really remember that and I don't remember my conversations with him, but I remember him being in the temple room, which we call the mandir and and singing devotional songs to God. And my na- his wife or my grandmother who passed away only a few weeks ago, again, like those rituals stayed on and continued all these years. And yes, I saw them less often, but they definitely influenced me and my food as well, because my mom obviously learned a lot of her cooking from her own mother.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you transfer these things, right? You transfer straight through. So that was your one side of your family. The other grandparents lived with you or lived closer to you. And what I'm struck by is this image of your grandfather stood on his head in the temple room, which I really love the idea of having a temple room. I think we're going to do that. Our granddaughter and daughter and son in law are moving out soon, so we're going to claim a room back.
1: So nice. And I think
0: we should have a temple room.
1: It's so nice to have that. And I think not all Indian homes, but many Indian homes have the mandir in their house, or sometimes it's sectioned off into just another room. Yeah. Like in my current grandparents' home, as in the one near me, my dad's parents, they have sort of mini office in the temple room as well. You know, it's nice to have a room dedicated to your altar or your temple or whatever you call your meditation room. You can call it whatever you like, but it's quite nice to have that space or a corner where you sort of associate that with the positivity, the sort of sitting down and just taking your mind away from everything and praying or meditating, whatever you call that ritual of coming back home.
0: That's lovely that is. So, tell me about the kitchen at your home with your other grandparents, and tell me about what you learned from them. And tell me about what you learned from mum.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Gosh. Again, these are things that I feel like I've captured in my first book. There's so many stories I've captured, but I haven't actually spoken about in a sense. So, it's quite wonderful to go back there. So, in my grandparents' home, what have I learned? So many things. Like, I think the concept of Saffron Soul, the first book, really came about from having moved away from London and lived abroad for so many years. I lived in Dubai and Uganda and India and all over the place and lost that sense of, you know, the ritual of eating together and the ritual of cooking together, seeing my mum and my aunts and my grandmother cook together. And when they came together in that house, you know, my grandmother would tell one aunt to make one thing and my mum would make another thing. They'd all come together. Everyone would just eat together. And it was all very automatic. And I think we took it all for granted that everyone made everything. When actually it's, it's a process, you know, it does take time and effort. And I think I was in India and it dawned on me that actually these recipes that I grew up eating that feel very normal to me, that I almost take for granted, are things that I'm going to regret if I don't record. Yeah. Because what I found is that Indian cookbooks focus on what you can recreate from restaurants or the more complex recipes that you don't get at home but not the things that you want to be able to cook at home on a daily basis. The things that don't require that much effort and taste delicious, but it's all about the technique. And so you want to capture that technique. You want to make sure that you capture the way that your mum makes it, because why is it that hers tastes so much better than yours. You know, yeah. like there's something I'm clearly missing. So what is it? It's the technique. It's not necessarily the amounts of spices or it could be also that, but it's the technique and it is her particular recipe or the way she does it or the way my grandmother does it. And so that's what I wanted to capture in Saffron so And hopefully I think I have done it. That's what makes it a timeless book because in a sense, it captures all these recipes that I grew up eating that you want to cook on a daily basis and not the things that you go out to eat. And that's what I love about the book. And also my own creations of what I have learned, but yet made my own in a sense. And so when I go back to that space, when I think of the kitchen, I think of the stories that I've not only written, but just the stories that my grandmother would suddenly start talking about or that I would ask. I think later when I started writing the book, I started asking her stories and or asking her things that she may have forgotten or are in her memory, but she may not necessarily relay. And even now, when I sit with her, she doesn't just come out with stories. I have to sort of probe her like, you know, oh, so when you were in Uganda or when you were living in the village in India, what did he do first thing in the morning? What did your own grandmother make for you? And how did that happen? And when your mom came to collect you from Mombasa to go back to Mombasa and you didn't go back with her because you thought your grandmother was your own mother and all this, like it's asking her those questions and recording those stories. And so yes, food tells stories, but also, you know, delving into those stories because otherwise they think of those stories as something that we're not interested in. But actually those are the things that later on we'll think, oh, but what did they do? And by that time they're gone and you don't know those stories.
0: If you have kids or if you have nieces and nephews, you can't transfer them on to the next generation or even just people that you know. That mm. transfer will end when that life what ends. I thought,
1: exactly. And what I find really interesting about this whole story of migration and how our food is very similar to the food that you get in the villages of India is that, so what happened is many years ago, my grandfather was actually born in Uganda, so it was his father. So he
0: was Ugandan Indian, the African yeah. Indian, right. Yeah. So...
1: so his own father came from India to Africa to settle yeah. to actually for business. That was your
0: paternal grandfather? Yes. Yeah.
1: Both actually, but I'm speaking about my paternal grandfather, yeah. whose story I know more. I know both their stories, but I have spoken a lot more to my paternal grandfather. So when they came from India to Uganda, so his own father came, they brought with them, or they took with them, a sort of, as it were, a suitcase of recipes, of language, of rituals, of culture, of heritage, of traditions, of fashion, everything, from the villages of India to Uganda. And they set it up there because they were, I think at that time, and even now, when you would come from somewhere else and you come into a foreign country, you want to safeguard what you have. You don't want to lose it. You want to make sure that your children don't become foreign, as it were. And this is, you know, many years ago. And these countries, you know, seeing a person of a different color wasn't normal because it's not like there was television at that time. So they were coming to Africa, having heard that some other people have gone to Africa made money so they go there for business, but they don't know what they're entering or the people that they're going to see there or how different they look or the sure. language they speak. So setting up a whole sort of temple or suitcase or you know, unpacking the suitcase <laughs> of everything, that was their world that they created. And there were so many of them that it was like a mini India that they set up there. And then they packed it all up when Idi Amin told them to get out of the country however many years later and came to London with it and they set it up here. So actually, while India moved on, their recipes, culture, food, fashion, language, everything didn't actually move on in a sense. So they might have moved on and made money and sent it back to India to their families. But actually, India might have moved on and yet they hadn't. They were still stuck
0: in that. I love this idea of a Mumbai or Bombay, as it was known back then. Time capsule, going to Africa and then coming here. And it was very, I mean, the as far as I'm aware, the Indian population in Uganda was a very wealthy population, it was very successful in terms of trading and business. And then Idi Amin, as you rightly say, Idi Amin basically banished everyone. Coming to London, you were born in London. Were your parents, were they born in India or in, in Uganda?
1: Uganda. In Uganda. My father was born in Mombasa, but they b- both grew up in Uganda, my yeah. mum and dad, and they didn't meet there, they met here.
0: They met here. Yeah. Tell me about
1: how they met. <laughs> um, well, it's always introduction at that time, but yes, it was an introduction. They then, I think secretly after they met for the first time, met up in between because my mother was in Loughborough. My dad was in London. They met somewhere. I don't actually know where.
0: Luton, probably. Yeah,
1: probably. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I, I'm really not sure. But they did meet up in between and then decide. I think my mum instinctively knew that. that was know, that she, an
0: illicit meeting? Did they, Yeah, was that... I
1: think there was one meeting where they like it wasn't meant to happen or like it wasn't you know, they Sanctioned. did it secretly. <laughs> yeah. But no, for I think first time my mom went with her family to see my father's family in the, you know, home that I was brought up in, the first home that I was in. And my grandmother, funnily enough, was telling me a few days ago that when the first time she came, she said, the kitchen's so white, how will I keep it clean? I'm not sure I can do this.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. I actually,
1: I haven't even asked my mum about that. This is the first time my grandmother's actually told me this a few days ago. It's hilarious. So it's these stories that only come up in the context of something else you're speaking about. And then you're like, oh yes, I heard that and I want to ask more about that. How did she, you know, find it when she first came to see my dad's house, as it were? And those are interesting stories because it's such a different way of meeting, you know, arranged marriages were arranged back in the day. Now, arranged marriages are just merely introductions. Well, in our context, of course, there are probably arranged marriages out there which are more traditional.
0: Sure, and I get that completely. And so growing up in West London, how did you greet the world? How did the world seem to you? Did it feel like a safe place to be or adventurous? Were you curious or was it intimidating?
1: I think growing up, I was in my own world. I didn't think of school as something that was in the city, but it was. My parents chose a very, I guess, Christian because we went to the church, but Indian in its value school. In central London, in Kensington, because it was a vegetarian school and they taught Sanskrit there. So for some reason, my parents found out about this school and sent us there. So we would travel all the way from Wembley to Kensington Kensington. every single day. Is (laughs) that state school? No, 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 private school. Private school, yeah. Um, But primarily because of you know the uniqueness, and even now it exists. It's changed location, but it exists. And while it's changed the way it teaches, you know, I think maybe Sanskrit isn't compulsory anymore. It's probably a bit more relaxed in it's sort of Indian values. But actually, I think what I learned from that school, it still remains with me. You know, philosophy was a big thing, learning things about all cultures, but also just learning Sanskrit, which I feel is like the key to our scriptures. And it's only because I know Sanskrit, which, you know, it's a bit like Latin, no longer spoken in most places, but it's only because I learned Sanskrit that I can now read Hindi. Hindi is a very different script to Gujarati. Mm. And so being able to understand Hindi is sort of a lot of India. And so going there and being able to converse a little bit is such a wonderful thing when you travel in India.
0: I'll bet. Yeah, I bet that opens everything. When you travel to India, you talked about how the excitement of landing and the smells and the feeling of discovery and the textures of Mumbai are so graphic. And that was really quite powerful, actually, when you talked about that. Do you feel that there's an affinity in terms of, we use the word oikos, it's the Greek word meaning home, and Mm. and the the definition is now eco. So ecology and economy are actually about the home, keeping the house in order. It's really interesting. Do you feel any oikos around Mumbai? Do you feel that there's some deep root there for you?
1: I do. I think India in general, though. So I've been to so much of India. I've traveled up to the mountains to Mount Gelas, which is the most significant, like, beautiful place, hard to get to actually. And I've traveled down south and I've traveled to Gujarat a lot. And there are parts of India where I don't feel at home as well. You know, there are parts I've not explored so much and the language is not predominantly Hindi as well, like places like Bangalore and that side. But all in all, I just feel a sense of belonging in India, which I think even as an NRI, a non-resident Indian, many people don't, because it feels a little bit strange and alien. Yeah. And when you look at it from that lens of the disparity being so stark or seeing so many homeless people and children and being so distraught by it or seeing slums and the dirt and all of that. There is all of that. But I think you've got to accept and not necessarily be numb to the contrasts or be numb to the slums and the poverty, but you've got to accept those contrasts and not necessarily go there with a sense of helplessness every time. So I guess you do develop a shield actually when you go to India that often. But you've got to have that compassion as well and not completely be devoid of that as well. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, but...
0: Tangents are what this podcast is all (laughs) about.
1: But yeah, I do feel like I've come home and I am a traveller at heart, but there is something about India where I feel a sense of, you know, that sort of, um, that big sigh that you have when you come home, Like, like that sort of sigh. And Mumbai does have that for me because I spent a lot of time in Mumbai. It's like the access gate to India for me. And from a very young age, I went to Mumbai. Gujarat a little bit as well, because I am Gujarati. So going to Ahmedabad and travelling in Gujarat is also very natural to me. Other parts of India, yes and no. In The places where I have spent more time, yes. Down south, maybe Goa. I love going there. It may not feel like home necessarily, but India all in all just has this magnetic calling for me. So yeah, a sense of oikos, definitely.
0: Now tell me about ritual. I'm really, a ritual plays a big part in my life. And it's interesting, there's a very short step from something being a ritual to something being constraining and something you have to do. I've kind of found that with my morning walks. I feel like I fail if I don't get up at half five and go for a walk. It was a ritual. Now it's constraining and there's a really interesting balance. Tell me about the power of ritual in your life.
1: So in my book, I start off by speaking about the morning rituals of things that I grew up with that, in fact, when you ask me about the scent of home, now that you asked me about ritual, I actually changed that answer a little because I remember the first thing in the morning, the scent of agarbatti, which is incense that my dad would light. And that scent is probably what I woke up with. And actually, I think that answer naturally came to me because I thought of it as opposed to I remember it, whereas this is what I remember.
0: Do you burn the same incense now?
1: Yes and no. So I think over the last five years, we've realized that incense on a daily basis isn't necessarily good for you just the way candles are not necessarily good for you so not so much anymore i do smell it and we do put it on but not as much as we used to it used to be a very much a daily thing and i think incense is good but i think you have to get the right incense but the fumes generally it's not the best thing to put on a daily basis p.m.
0: 10s and p.m.
1: 5s yeah so no i still you know smell it and the sound of my dad's morning ragas in the morning, and it's always the same morning raga, you know, the Hanuman Chalisa by Rajan and Sarjan Misra, some famous classical singers from India. So those are the things that I woke up to, I'm pretty sure, from a very long time ago. So when I started writing that book, and I went into my cave of thought and soul, I thought to myself, actually, when I woke up in Dubai in my sort of very lonely days, in a very high apartment in Dubai, living in the clouds somewhere, and I was struck by that silence that consumed me. When I thought about that time, I thought it was the rituals that were missing. And that's what I missed. I missed the hum of like people talking in the house. I missed having the other house to go to and seeing my grandparents, my uncles and aunts. I missed the scent of the agarbatti or the incense in the morning or the sound of the morning ragas or, you know, my mum speaking on the phone or asking me to come down. And it's not like I was doing that just before I got married. I was living in university and out. But I still had that sense of home. And I think when I started writing the book, I was like, those rituals was quite important. And I didn't recognize that when I was abroad. And I didn't try and replicate it either. And I had the sense of nomadicness in my life, which, yes, you can create a home wherever you are, but I was traveling a lot. And I think I missed that sense of ritual. And those are the sort of rituals where I think you go back to because you grew up with them. Other rituals which I write about in the book and which I've instilled in my life, they change, you know, like yoga, for example, was a massive ritual when I was trying to find myself again, maybe 10 years ago. And I started doing a lot of yoga, going on yoga retreats. And uh, when I moved back to London, try yoga became a place I went to all the time. And yoga became a big thing for me. And then over time, fitness has become a bigger thing. So waking up and making sure I do some sort of exercise first thing in the morning, try and do it first thing in the morning, because it gets it out of the way. And especially this year, I've really tried to, well, in the past month, take it to the next level and wake up really, really early. And even waking up early is a ritual in itself. I
0: love that. I'm an early riser and my alarm goes off at 5.40 every morning. Brilliant. I normally wake before it. Waiting, waiting. Yeah, really? Yeah, waiting. We get up and walk at 6.30. I'd like to get up and walk at 6. Right, I'd like an extra half an hour.
1: You don't find it too dark? <laughs> you
0: no, know, I've got a head torch. We live in the middle oh, of the country, yeah. so we live near Ashby de la Azuz, so not a million miles away from your grandparents' work. And so it's all national forest. It's all woodland. And wow. we just walk through the woods with massive face-melting torches.
1: That's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think I'm naturally a night owl and changing my body clock over lockdown to becoming much more a morning person was a real blessing because it took a little bit of time. Mm. And yes, when I lose that balance and tip over to having late nights it's hard to get back but when i'm on that bandwagon of waking up early i feel transformed yeah feel so good
0: yeah very much so so the book is about ritual as a route to happiness or as a part of happiness are you happy
1: i am and i think the idea of those rituals and what i write in the book is for example if you have instilled certain practices and rituals those Rituals can be anything. It could be your morning run. It could be listening to something uplifting in the morning. It could be taking five minutes to do meditation. It could be waking up and just seeing the sun and having your cup of coffee or chai and just focusing on that cup of coffee or chai and reading a magazine. It could be anything. But if you have a sense of certain rituals during the day and during the week, you could be doing two runs a week or two exercise classes a week, whatever. It doesn't have to be yoga. It doesn't have to be meditation. If you have those rituals instilled into your daily and weekly life, when you're going through the sort of harder parts of life, when you're going through your difficult times, those rituals will keep you going. They'll give you a sense of grounding. And I didn't really have those rituals. I think I'd lost all my rituals. And I think what happened when I went through my very, very hard time when I was living abroad or living in between places, I found my thing, I found yoga. And you do, you find your spurts of happiness. And I think when you're in that low mode, and I think everyone, you know, life is about that. You have your highs and lows. But when you go through those low points, Once you've been through it once, you kind of get that toolbox of things, of practices, of rituals, of things that will bounce you back. And they may not bounce you back immediately. You may just have moments of spurts of happiness. It's like, oh, let me go for that run. I'll get a glimmer of endorphins from that run. Or like, I'll have a drink with my friend and that'll keep me going for an hour. But you know, fill your day or your week up with a few of those and at least keep grounded rather than sinking fully into your loneliness and isolation and sadness and whatever you're going through. And I think when I was going through my hard time about 10 years ago, I didn't say to myself, oh, these are my rituals. But I did say to myself, okay, the sun makes me happy. Let me go and do this. Or sitting here and having a drink or having something to eat here with a friend or calling someone up will make me happy. Or going for a yoga class and going for a swim will make me happy. I was living in Dubai at the time. And I would just do those few things that would make me happy. And I knew what would make me sad, which is just being alone all the time and listening to my thoughts, because sometimes that's not what you need. And actually, people talk about meditation is the key to everything, which I think that's the ultimate end game, of course. But I think even Irada says this, when you're going through a really hard time, sitting alone with your thoughts is not what you need. And so, no, the answer initially isn't just immerse yourself in meditation. It's different for everyone.
0: Sure, You've got to get off the mat as well as on the mat. You've got to get off the meditation buffet as well as on to the meditation buffet. Were you alone at this point? You said you were married.
1: Yeah, I was married, but I was in a very much of a limbo period for about a year or two where I wasn't really with my ex-husband and we weren't sure what we're doing. And eventually we got a divorce, but it was very much a period of me being alone wherever I was. And we weren't really in touch for a while.
0: Was that freeing or did that feel like failure, your divorce?
1: Initially, like in that period where I'm talking about a complete failure, because a lot happened at that time. And... You know, when something's not really in your dictionary or your vocabulary, I think, I know most people don't anticipate divorce, but I was surrounded by people who were just about getting married because I got married so early. So I didn't think of divorce as, I didn't know anyone who was getting divorced. It wasn't an option. It wasn't an option. No one around me, no one in my family, no one I knew. So I didn't even know what divorce, what it actually involved. So... That wasn't really the option. So the limbo period, I just thought, oh God, I need to just get back on track. I just need to get back on track. Yeah. So I was sort of, I guess, working on myself or figuring out, not figuring out because there was nothing to figure out. I just didn't know where this was going. There was literally a period of a year where I just didn't know what was happening in my life, where I was going to be, You know, what would be happening next year, where my ex-husband was. Like, I just didn't know what was going on.
0: There must have been a massive wash of freedom that came with your change in circumstance, no matter how you get there, whether it's meditation, yoga, or just saying, oh, I miss the old me, whatever it is, that freedom must have been incredibly empowering. What led you to come home? Or was that what led you to come home?
1: It took a really long time to sort of find happiness again. So when you said, are you happy now? Yes. I mean, I feel like I'm living what some would call my best life, but I'm sure there'll be better years as well. You know, I'm not saying this is the best, but I'm enjoying life. And I think, you know, every year I felt, oh, wow, I'm in a much better place. I'm in a much better place. But it took a long time to get there. And I think that, you know, I would call those daily yoga classes and making new friends in yoga, figuring out that I want to be in the food and the wellness industry, going on yoga retreats. I would call all those things stepping stones to Mm. regaining my happiness. And it wasn't like it was not there one year and it came the next day or the next year. It was a very much a process. You know, I w- you know, year on year, I'd be like, I feel like I'm in a much better place. But there's always something missing, right? You're always mm-hmm. going to find something that's upsetting you because life will never be smooth sailing. It's about how you look at and how you perceive those harder times or those stumbling blocks or whatever comes your way, how do you perceive those? And actually having got over one thing or one big hurdle, you think, well, it's okay, you know, this too shall pass.
0: Exactly. It's funny when you answered that question, are you happy? I didn't believe you. And it's not that I didn't believe you. I've then rethought that through. I'm, I'm kind of whirring as you're talking. And I'm thinking, it's not that I don't believe you. It's just that you're not quite there yet. This is a journey, not a destination. Absolutely. And that's the feeling I picked up there. And I love what you just said. It's, it's a very important part of my Qigong practice is this being able to observe the discomfort of unhappiness rather than identifying with yourself as unhappy. And it's the same with happiness. It's being able to observe this moment of joy without thinking, this is me now forever. And being able to sit above and be a bit more sage about these things, I think is really interesting. And for me, meditation helps me go there. It helps me sit in a place of non judgmental observation of myself, mm. not, not of anybody else. Yeah, that's not.
1: really true. And I think you know, having those practices. And that's the one thing that the morning rituals of waking up super early has allowed me, especially in the last month, because I've been trying to wake up really early, three, four days a week. And that's allowed me to have that moment of like sitting still, even if it's for a few moments after my exercise with breath work and having that sense of calm. Because I think when the day starts, even if you're not busy for an hour, you're still thinking about what's going on. Yeah. And having that moment with your thoughts in the morning, it's just invaluable.
0: I love that. And look, you know, we've, we've come to the end of the conversation and I've really such an enriching half an hour with you. Where are you going next? What are you going to do this weekend with your grandparents? And how do people find out more about you?
1: Where am I going next? I feel like India's on the cards, I hope, soon. I was meant to go in December and I changed that plan and I kind of wish I'd gone. I'm going to go to India soon, I hope. And then my grandmother is now still alive. My grandfather passed away last year and I will definitely go and see her. I was with her a few days ago on the death anniversary of my grandfather. I'll see her tomorrow, so I'll just see her. I would love to do more with her, but she's not really able to go out right now. So people can find me on my Instagram mainly, at Mira miramanek, M-I-R-A-M-A-N-E-K, and my chai brand, at chai by Mira, C-H-A-I, by B-Y-M-I-R-A, and those are my main points of contact. I also have a website and you can get all the chai's on the chai website Um and that's it.
0: That's amazing and the whole idea of prana life force breath that runs through everything that you've written and saffron soul also there's a huge part of that in there and you know your breath is vibrant and the work that you do it breathes life into everyone that touches it so thank oh, you. Oh, Thank for you that's really kind. Thank you.
1: As does yours. Oh, you don't need to do oh, <laughs> I'll Your out. book <laughs> is like, your book's so amazing as well. So thank you.